This morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. While you're turning there, you probably take it for granted that the pulpit is in the center of the sanctuary. And there's good reason for that, and that is because the emphasis here is the priority of the exposition of the Word of God. You must remember that all false religions attempt to somehow please God or placate God. They're always searching for God, but Christianity is radically different. Rather than us searching for Him, He seeks us and we listen to Him speak. A very, very different paradigm. God is constantly revealing Himself to His people through His Word, seeking us, manifesting Himself to us, and communing with us. And He does this primarily through His Word. And so this morning it is my joy to open up the Word to you once again. Our text is found in Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, The Seeker and the Soothsayer. Follow along as I read Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she had she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Here we have two very different women who ultimately typify all of humanity. We have a seeker, a woman whereby God has been at work in her heart, softening her heart to the truth, preparing her for salvation, causing her to have a heart of humility, tender towards the things of God. And ultimately, by grace, one who embraces that truth and is radically transformed by it as she comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, we have a very different person, 
a soothsayer, in other words, a fortune teller, one who, because of her persistent unbelief, has been judicially hardened by God. She has no desire to be saved from her sin and worship God in spirit and in truth. She is in bondage to her sin, spiritually dead, spiritually blind, serving her father, the devil. She is frolicking in the kingdom of darkness. She knows the truth intellectually, as do many, but she rejects it spiritually. And everyone within the sound of my voice falls into one of these categories. Either God is at work in you, causing your heart to become softer as he, by his grace, causes you to seek and eventually you will be saved. Or perhaps you're already born again because God has already worked that work of grace in your heart. Or you're like the soothsayer who walks in darkness. Who loves darkness rather than light because your deeds are evil. You're a slave to your lust. You're in rebellion to God. You are at enmity with him. And you are therefore under his wrath because you have never confessed Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And therefore you are destined for eternal judgment lest you repent. As we come to this fascinating piece of history which you must remember has been revealed to us by God himself through the pen of Luke. I find myself captivated by three remarkable realities. Let me give them to you and we will investigate the text accordingly. First of all, I'm captivated by the providence of God. Secondly, by the preparation of grace. And thirdly, by the power of the gospel. Now, let me remind you of the context once again. Paul is on his second missionary journey along with Silas. And Timothy now has joined with them. And they have recently revisited some of the newly established churches in the regions of Syria and Cilicia strengthening them in the faith, discipling them, and many more have been added to their number. And then they set their sights on Asia, the regions of Asia, Asia, which would be Asia Minor in particular, the region of Turkey today. But the Holy Spirit, for reasons unknown, has prevented them from going there. So when that happens, you know that God has other plans. So he speaks to Paul in a vision at night. Verses 9 and 10, we read that vision. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so now we see that Luke joins the team. So you have the foursome of Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke going in to Macedonia, which was Greece. And frankly, this was a northern region of Greece as we look at the map today. And so in verse 11, we see that they put out to sea from Troas. Now, that was uh, Troas is north a northeastern region of, um, of Asia Minor or modern Turkey. 
And it says here that that we ran a straight course to Samothrace. Samothrace was uh, uh, and is today an island in the Aegean Sea. It's a, kind of a halfway point between Asia Minor. And uh, so they put into port there in Samothrace and spend the night there. It's very unsafe, especially in those waters to sail at night. So they spend the night there. And then it says on the day following to Neapolis. In other words, now they go into a city here on the coast of Macedonia or Greece. And now, dear friends, the gospel is beginning to spread into Europe. And eventually, I, of course, rejoice, as many do you, you do, because my ancestors are from Scotland and from England and Ireland. And eventually the gospel spreads all the way up there. And many of my ancestors were saved, as probably many of yours as well. And in verse 12, it says, and from there to Philippi. Philippi is just a a few miles northwest off the coast. And it says it was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And indeed, it was a great military outpost. And it tells us here that we were staying in this city for some days. Now, dear friends, here in Philippi is where the real story begins. Or shall I say where the story blossoms? Because as we will see, it began in eternity past when God decreed it and set it all into motion. First of all, we marvel, number one, at the providence of God. Notice at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now, beloved, this is amazing to me. Think about God's providence here. God has prevented Paul and Silas from going further into Asia. And instead, he is going to bring them into Europe. And he brings them to this most unimaginable place, an obscure place of solitude. Down by a riverside, a riverside prayer meeting made up of a handful of women. Now, you will recall in our study of Acts, whenever Paul went into a new city, he would always go to the Jew first. He would always go to a synagogue. But there's no synagogue here. We know historically that you had to have ten Men, ten leaders of a household in order to have a synagogue in a city. So obviously that was not the case here. So here we have a place where there are very few God-fearing Jews, only a handful of women, as best we can tell. Now, as I think about it, Paul would have never planned such a humble encounter. He would have never thought, you know, rather than going into Asia Minor, let's sail over to Macedonia and find an obscure place where there's a handful of women praying beside a river. And very often we find, however, that God does precisely those kinds of things. Paul even would later write in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 25, about the foolishness of God and how it is stronger than men. For consider your calling, he said, brethren, consider your calling that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. 
God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. And indeed, there's no boasting here. God takes them to this obscure little part of the world beside a river. I want you to notice here there's no missionary fanfare in Paul's arrival with the other three. Unlike the modern Phariseeism of the Mary cult known as Roman Catholicism, as we've seen here in the spectacle of the Pope's visit uh, here in the United States. Unlike that, Paul and his little team of four were were not uh, adorned in the ostentatious uh, religious garb of wealth and power and spiritual elitism. In fact, Paul said of himself that he was the lowest of the galley slaves. He said of himself that he came in weakness and fear and much trembling. He said of himself that he was a fool for Christ's sake. He said of himself that he was the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. In fact, he even compared himself to an earthen vessel in 2 Corinthians 4, literally a privy pot, a lowly, common, expendable little pot that was used for human excrement. Why would he use that? Because the glory is in the message, not in the messenger. There was no ornate cathedral that he went to. No throngs of crowds worshiping him. No synagogue even. No massive marketing campaign to determine the optimal audience. There's no media blitz announcing his crusade. Just four sinners saved by grace that looks just like everybody else going to an obscure little place alongside a riverbank. Beloved, think of the providence of God once again. Think how a Jewish rabbi, a blasphemous hater of Christ, this violent murderer of Christians, was miraculously saved. He begins to preach the gospel. And he steered away from preaching in Asia Minor. And now God brings him to this remote, nondescript place on the bank of a river to sit with these humble women who were probably forbidden to worship within the confines of the city because that would have been considered a sacred area for the pagan gods. God was about to bring salvation to the first recorded convert in Europe who was also visiting there from from Thyatira in Asia Minor. Now, understand, these women worshipped the true God of Israel, as we see here in the text, but obviously they knew nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. But all of this was about to change. With no male leadership, these women are meeting on the Sabbath day, the text tells us, So they have their own little prayer meeting. They would have done as all good Jews would do. They would have read from the Old Testament. They would have prayed. They would have basically had a Bible study in the Old Testament. What a precious sight. And beloved, isn't this typical of the scenarios that the Lord brings about in our lives? Scenarios of saving grace whereby God honors those who seek him 
even if they do so in ignorance. So Paul and Silas, and Timothy and Luke are led to this solitary and, and sacred place of worship in the sanctuary of creation. And no doubt these women would have been thrilled to have some male leadership, especially a rabbi to come and to speak to them. As a footnote, many feminists tend to malign the Apostle Paul, calling him a male chauvinist. I have encountered that on numerous occasions in my ministry, some even here at this church. And it's, it's sad. They say, well, you know, he forget, forbids women to teach or exercise authority over men, and he instructs them to be submissive to their husbands, and he tells them that they need to be workers at home, that they need to be occupied with raising their children and loving their husbands and so on, and therefore he's a male chauvinist. Well, dear friends, that is so ridiculous. I mean, this is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the spokesman, a messenger from God. And we see him here doing something that no other rabbi in that day would have ever done. And that is to sit down and to teach women. In fact, the Pharisees of those days would routinely thank God that they were not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So he's anything but a male chauvinist. Instead, the Apostle Paul... Empowered by the Spirit of God, loves these women enough to speak boldly to them and to give them the way of salvation and to instruct them on how to maximize God's blessing in their life and how to give him glory and so on. So such an accusation betrays an utter disregard for God's didactic purposes in submission and headship, as we see delineated in Scripture it utterly disregards how God has ordained Christian men and women to reflect the love and subordination within the triune Godhead and how husbands and wives are to be analogs of Christ in the church. Well, the little team now joins this little riverside worship service of God-fearing women. And notice in verse 14 what happens. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, this is fascinating. Lydia from Thyatira, a city in the Roman province of Lydia. Again, Asia Minor, Asia, Asia Minor where the door had been closed. Her name was probably not Lydia. She was simply known as the lady from Lydia. They would often do that in those days. But we see that she was a seller of purple fabrics. Now, it's interesting. There was a particular fascination with the colors red or crimson and blue and purple in those ancient days. And purple was especially associated with wealth and with royalty. And it was used, we know, in the fabrics and in the linens of the tabernacle and in the temple and even in the clothing worn by the priests. And we know that Thyatira was famous for its blue and red and purple dye made from the secretion produced by the hypobronchial gland of the mollusk, which is nothing more than a little sea snail. 
And I did some research on this. And it's interesting, as I studied it, there are various shades of these colors that were achieved by using different species of mollusks. And they would alternate the ratio of what was secreted from them, and they would add other ingredients. And the beauty of these colors is stunning. But one of the things that made it so valuable in those days was the fact, not only because they were beautiful, but because they would not oxidize or fade away, as many other colors would do. I understand that it takes about 8,500 mollusks to produce one gram of dye. That's a lot of little sea snails. And immediately upon their harvest from the sea, the people would extract this, this little secretion from these little snails. And they say that the wool that was dyed or the linens that was dyed from this extra extract was worth about 20 times its weight in gold. So Lydia was probably a rather wealthy woman, a very important woman. In fact, if you study the ancient process and terms of the whole issue of purple and this dye, you will see that the color was probably more royal blue than purple as we would think about it. So Lydia was probably uh, a merchant of the seller of, as the Hebrew would say, tekelet or blue. The replication of this process, by the way, is still being done. And we see it done, for example, in Israel. And one expert on this topic, a Dr. John Gar, says this. And I thought I would quote it to you. When the secretion from the hypobronchial gland of the murex tranquilus mollusk is extracted, it is a clear yellowish liquid, dibromo indigo, which is put into a reduced solution for vat dyeing of wool. In the presence of sunlight, however, the ultraviolet spectrum causes the dibromo indigo to dibrominate, he says, to indigo. The shade of the resultant color is dependent upon the degree of exposure to ultraviolet light. Therefore, on a cloudy day or in controlled sunlight, the color is more violet or purple, while on a cloudless day, the color is sky blue. Interesting. So Lydia was probably on a business trip. She had probably sailed across over here to Philippi to sell her valuable purple fabrics. But what I find more interesting is that God was at work behind the scenes preparing her heart. And what a precious reality that is for us to remember, dear friends. You never know for sure what God is up to behind the scenes in your life or in the lives of others. You never know. Little did she know that the purple robe that the soldiers draped over the Lord Jesus Christ as they mocked his royalty at the time of his crucifixion. When they put those, that, that crown of thorns upon his head, little did she know that that purple robe would take on a significance beyond her imagination. Little did she know that soon the King of Kings would become her Lord and Savior. And I have 
No way of proving this. This is purely conjecture. But wouldn't it be interesting to find out someday that the robe that was put on Jesus was one that was purchased from her store? So in the providence of God, both Paul and this woman from Thyatira named Lydia are brought together in this riverside prayer meeting on the outskirts of Philippi. It's utterly amazing. Again, stop and think about it. The doors were closed in Asia. So what does God do? He brings Asia to Europe and begins to bring the gospel into Europe. And undoubtedly, Lydia eventually went back to her home and took the gospel along with her household back into Asia Minor. Beloved, I trust that we learn a lesson here. What may seem to be a disappointment to you in some area of life, may later prove to be the source of your greatest joy. You just never know. Be content to let God be God in your life. Be content to take what He gives you. Be content with what He takes away, where He leads you, the doors that He opens, the doors that He closes. May I encourage you to joyfully submit to whatever his purposes may be, even though to you they may seem hopelessly flawed. That somehow God doesn't get it. That God, if you only had more information, you would know that this is what needs to happen. But in the omniscience and holiness of God, he has a plan that far exceeds our ability to comprehend. His timing is always perfect, as are his ways. I think of all who are even in the range of my voice this morning, people all around the world that join with us on the Internet, especially those in China, which seems to be the largest audience that are a part of this church. I think how that none of that is by accident. There's no such thing as luck or coincidence or random chance, but rather God in his providence knows precisely what he's doing in the life of every person. And even those who are a part of this worship service or many others like it all around the world are a part of these services because of God's love and his providence. It's always at work for the purpose of saving his elect. And I marvel at the providence of God, but secondly, also at the preparation of grace. Notice here that Lydia was also a worshiper of God. This tells us that she was not a proselyte, but she clearly worshipped the God of Israel. She had rejected the pagan gods of her culture. She somehow saw the truth in the God of of Israel, and of course we know why, because the Spirit of God was working in her heart. And as I think about it, grace was preparing her. Long before she attended this Riverside prayer service, grace was at work preparing her heart. And may we learn yet another principle here from Lydia, and that is that God will always Save those who seek him, even if their seeking is muddied with ignorance and superstition. For we know biblically that no one seeks after God. The scripture is very clear about that. 
Romans 3.11 and other passages. No one seeks after God unless what happens? Unless God is at work causing them to do so. And here we witness the marvel of God preparing someone for salvation. I want to be careful here. Beloved, this is not the prevenient grace of the Arminian error that would somehow be powerless to save apart from the exercise of the human will. Rather, this is a preparatory grace that cannot be dismissed, one that ultimately will do what it was intended to do, and that is to transform a person and make them a new creature in Christ. You must understand that God does not pace the throne room of heaven, biting his nails in helpless desperation hoping that the spiritually dead will somehow raise themselves enough to be able to grasp the gift of grace. That is not the God of the Bible. Instead, what we see is an irresistible grace that was decreed in eternity past by a sovereign God whose purposes cannot be thwarted. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, we read that by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, we are reminded that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Paul goes on to say, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, referring to Christ. And then he says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Indeed, beloved, everything that that causes a sinner to believe in God has been God ordained and God induced. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read, by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So you must understand biblically, God must give life to the spiritually dead. It is God who must give sight to the spiritually blind. It is God who must cause faith to raise up within the heart of those who are unable to believe. So, beloved, when the arrow of salvation is released from the bow of sovereign grace, it will always reach its mark. Because it is God, not man, who initiates salvation. And here again, we see in ways that are imperceptible, the Father drawing men with an irresistible compelling. Jesus said that no one comes to the Father unless He draws them. Unless He softens the sinner's heart through the vicissitudes of life, They will never come to Christ. What a humbling doctrine. It is God who sets the mind in motion, and we see that here with Lydia. It is God who takes the will of man and makes it voluntarily surrender to the gospel of grace. So here again, we see the Lord providentially orchestrating a myriad of circumstances to bring Lydia to this Riverside prayer meeting. And he's been preparing her heart to voluntarily embrace the gift of grace. Notice what he caused her to do in verse 14. This worshiper of God was listening. Underscore that. She was listening. 
The King James Version says that she attended to the things which were spoken of Paul. Now, dear friends, many people hear the words of the life changing truth of the gospel, but never listen with the passion to be saved. I have witnessed that down through the years in my ministry. There are those who hear, but few who listen. In fact, Jesus would often conclude his parables by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus stressing the profound importance of the message that he was bringing. But also distinguishing between those who had been given the ability to hear versus those who remain spiritually deaf. In fact, Jesus explained to his disciples why he spoke in parables. Remember in Matthew 13, they were curious about that. And he said, beginning in verse 11, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted Because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he went on to explain that because of their persistent unbelief, God judicially sealed them in their sin and prevented them from understanding the truth. He went on to say, and in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing but will not perceive for the heart of this people has become dull and with their ears, they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes lest they should see with their eye and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return. And I should heal them. I might also add that when God judicially hardens a sinner, this is an act of divine mercy. And the reason why is because Further exposure to the truth would bring upon them increased condemnation in the day of judgment. So Lydia was listening to God, listening to God speak through his apostle. She had been given ears to hear by God himself. She had a hunger and a thirsting for righteousness. So I can see her in my mind's eye. She sits there and she hangs on every word the apostle is speaking She had a reverence for the authority of God when the word was preached by his servant, a virtue that is very scarce these days in a culture where people say, well, nobody's going to tell me what to think or what to do. I cannot count the times when I've talked with people who say, well, you know what, preacher, I just don't buy your gospel. Of course, I'm quick to tell them it's not my gospel. I'm just the preacher of the Lord's gospel. Well, I just don't buy it. It makes no sense to me. It is both foolish and it is offensive. Well, why is that? Well, Jesus answered this in John 8, beginning in verse 43. He said, why do you not understand what I'm saying? And he answers it. It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. But God opened Lydia's ears 
so that she could listen, so that she could hear the truth. And then notice in verse 14, it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And this, beloved, leads us to the third observation that causes me to marvel. And that is the power of the gospel. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Dear friends, had he not done so, she would have never believed. Had he not done so in my life when I was a boy, I would have never believed. Had he not done so in your life, you would have never believed. And we rejoice knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so now Lydia could say, oh, God, now now I'm understanding now, now I begin to understand the meaning of the sacrifices, that the consequences of sin was death. Now I'm beginning to see what I've studied in the Old Testament, that there had to be a substitute for my sin. Now I understand that all of that pointed to the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of all those who would believe in him, that the Lord Jesus was the substitute now I'm understanding God's grace. Now I can understand the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to me. Now I can see that Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, but He was the incarnation of the law. Now I can see that His perfect life satisfied the wrath of God. And He died in the sinner's stead. Oh God, thank You for such grace. Oh, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. And I ask you to save me and forgive me of my sins. And at that moment, when her heart was open to respond to the things spoken by Paul, because the Lord had opened her heart, she became a new creature in Christ. Dear friends, what comfort this is in evangelism. Please hear this. The words of a preacher or the words of, of, of anyone who presents the gospel, they may enter the mind, but only God can transform the heart. It is the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of man, who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, Jesus said. And indeed, we are told all through Scripture that man has something that he must do. And here is the great paradox, as it seems to our mind, that man has to do something, but he can't do it unless God causes him to do so. But yet we see that man is called to repent. He must turn to God. We are told that we have to strive to enter through the narrow way, that we must deny ourselves. And yet we know that ultimately even these are the fruits of some mysterious quickening of the Spirit of God. This is such a precious principle in evangelism. Let me put it to you this way. Whenever we present the gospel to someone, and parents, I know so many of you are here with young children. I really want you to hear this, especially with our children. Whenever we present the gospel, God uses the clarity of our content, not the cleverness of our communication, to bring about salvation. Our responsibility is to present the truth according to the level of those that we're dealing with. When I'm sharing the gospel with someone that is five years old, it's very different than with a college professor. 
But, you know, ultimately, it's the same thing. You're a sinner. You can never enter into the presence of God unless you've been made holy. You are utterly unable to do unable to do that on your own. Only the only way that can ever happen is for God to do something for you. And then I introduce them to Jesus. So our responsibility is to be correct. I like to put it this way. We need to be concise. And we need to be compelling in our teaching. But ultimately, it is God who does the work. You know, I'm so thankful for that. Because I know when the Lord calls me home, there will be many thousands of people that I've shared the gospel with that never believed. And I would hate to know that that was because of my fault. But rather, it's because of the justice of God that I cannot explain. I would not want to be a preacher of the gospel if I thought it was up to me to somehow manipulate you through clever communication and techniques and tear-jerking stories and, and certain types of music to try to get you to walk down an aisle and repeat a prayer. But I'm thankful that it is God who works within your heart. A.W. Tozer spoke to this so poignantly. When I found this quote, I was so encouraged. Here's what he said. Probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. He went on to say too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of, end quote. How true and how sad. And here we have a perfect example, beloved, of the unstoppable power of the gospel to save those whom God has intended to save. And we see the evidence of this in the next verse, verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized. Now, let me stop there. You see, Lydia was willing now to bear the shame of being a follower of Christ. She was willing to be publicly identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and to be baptized. This said it loud and clear that I identify with the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, what an opportune time. They were right there by the river. And no doubt they had the baptism there. But I want you to remember, dear friends, it is belief that saves, not baptism. Let me just underscore that once again. It is belief that saves, not baptism. There's there's so many texts that speak to this. And I I grieve over how people have twisted and distorted this type of thing, this this doctrine to make you think that somehow the spirit of God will not come upon you until you go into the water as if there is the dispensing of saving grace in the water. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, he who has believed. And has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. 
In other words, again, it is belief that saves, not baptism. Moreover, it is disbelief that condemns not the failure to be baptized. The text is very clear, as are many others. But I want you to notice here, her entire household was also saved. Isn't this precious? Verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized. Oh, beloved, think of this. Think of the power of the gospel upon an entire family. I know some of you have broken the chain in your family by God's grace of people who have rejected Christ. And because of your salvation, others in your family have come to know Christ. I think of the influence of the godly on the ungodly. It's an astounding thing. We are told statistically that most believers come to a saving knowledge of Christ by the age of 16. Beloved, therefore, may I encourage you, make your household the house of God. May I encourage you to let all who live within your house see the God of the Bible, see the power of Christ in you, the hope of glory. May I encourage you to make your family worship a priority. May I encourage you to gather your children often around you to read the Bible and to pray and let them see the priority of your heart. Yes, bring them to church. But also make your home a sanctuary. May I encourage you to decorate your home with the items of praise that I know many of you do. So that your children will constantly be exposed to the truth. And so that friends that come to visit you will be exposed to the truth. I pray that the music that will resonate within your rooms will be the songs of redemption. Make your home a place that honors God so that your household will be saved. And make your home a haven for others. Notice what happens here. Notice Lydia's love for the brethren, which, by the way, again, is a proof for her salvation, a proof of anyone's salvation. Anyone that claims to be a Christian but has no love for other Christians fools themselves because this is a chief characteristic of genuine saving faith. First John 2 speaks to that, as do other passages. Notice verse 15 again. It says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, she said. Come into my house and stay. Now, this was a wonderful, wonderful act of hospitality because you must understand the alternative. The alternative for that foursome of missionaries would be to probably sleep on the ground someplace or maybe sleep in a barn. They had very few inns in those days, and the inns were really nothing more than disease-ridden brothels. They were the favorite hunting grounds for thieves and murderers. So hospitality was extremely important. And plus, this lady and her household now wants to be taught. They want that fellowship. And beloved, again, I would encourage you, if somehow this is missing in your life, you need to examine your faith. If you have no desire to be around other believers, if you have no desire to fellowship, If you have no desire to immerse yourself in the word and grow by it, there is something wrong with your faith. 
Well, not so with Lydia. And again, all these magnificent changes in Lydia and her household were the result of the providence of God that orchestrated all of these events that ultimately she would be saved as well as the preparation of grace that worked in her heart and softened it to the truth that God gave her through his servant, the Apostle Paul. And also, of course, through the power of the gospel that utterly transformed her into a new creation. But I want you to notice the stark contrast between the seeker and the soothsayer. The one who walked in darkness, verse 16 And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. You see, this was a demon possessed girl. Text says having a spirit of divination, axison pneuma puthavas, puthanas. Puthanos comes from Puthon in Greek. We get our word Python from that. And literally what it's saying here is she had a spirit of Python or a Python spirit. You see, in Greek mythology, it was believed that a Python guarded the Delphic oracles and later was slain by Apollo, who was the god of prophecy. So that's kind of where all of that came from. But Puthon, which in, in Greek became Python in English, but it literally meant the, 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 a python, a snake, or divination or prophecy. And the term eventually referred to a spirit of divination. By the way, the Greeks even in that day believed that a ventriloquist had this spirit of python that lived within his belly and therefore caused him to be able to speak through whatever little person he had sitting on his lap. So this gal was what we would call a medium who was able to communicate with demons. You know, we see this all the time in our culture. We see it especially in the occult. But we also see it in the quote unquote Christian prophets that are fleecing the flock. Prophets for profit. That's why the Lord tells us in 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Beloved, you must remember here that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so it should be no surprise to us that his disciples, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, masquerade as servants of righteousness. Now, the Romans prized these people, as do many in our culture. And they would often consult these people for matters of war, matters of of commerce, um, matters even of religion. And these people made a lot of money. And, of course, they did have supernatural powers, demonic powers, and they do today. We see them in many areas of our culture. And what we see here, verse 17, is she was following after Paul and us. Luke tells us she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who were proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, some would have said, wow, isn't this great? This 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 soothsayer here, this fortune teller is a believer. Isn't it great to see what God has done? Well, Paul saw right through that. Friends, again, you must remember, Satan loves to feign belief and infiltrate the ranks of the church 
through counterfeit believers. It happens all the time. These are called the tares that come in amongst the wheat. May I warn you, beware of the, the occult, but don't be afraid of them. Greater is he that is in you that is, than he that is in the world, right? We are to resist the devil. And what will he do? He'll flee from us. Just a quick story as I was thinking about this. I've had a number of occasions when I've been around people that are demonically possessed. I remember one in particular when I was in the the early 70s when I was studying at Moody Bible Institute. We would often encounter uh, demon-possessed people in various regions of the city. And I remember one encounter. There was this uh, ominous occultic people called the Process. And they wore the black robes and these hoods, just something out of a horror movie, frankly. And uh, every now and then we would go down to a place called Old Town, Chicago, and we would share the gospel with people. And we would see these hooded characters standing on on the corners and they would tell people's fortunes and they would talk about uh, being Satan worshipers and all this. And one time I remember in the midst of a crowd kind of bumping into one and one turned around and saw me face to face and immediately shrieked, get away from me, and went on to say, this is a follower of Christ. And he pointed to me. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but he kept shrieking and screaming. And it, it you know, scared me to death. You know, I'm, I didn't really know what to say or what to do. But I remember feeling just an overwhelming sense of God's presence in the midst of that, in the midst of all of that commotion. And somehow that particular person knew that I was a believer. So there was some spiritual warfare going on there that that I don't fully understand. And we don't need to understand. But beloved, seldom do we encounter these types of things. Don't look for Satan and his emissaries in black hooded robes lurking in the shadows of certain regions of a wicked city. Look for them in religious robes pontificating in the full light of some pulpit. Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, those who dress up like pastors or like religious leaders, but they masquerade as servants of righteousness even though they are unrighteous. Verse 18, and she continued doing this for many days. Don't you know that would get on your nerve? Having this gal following along, Paul knowing full well that she wasn't a believer, knowing that there was some spirit hounding them as they shared the gospel and endeavored to disciple these women and others. So it says, Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. In other words, Paul got fed up with this constant irritation. And it's so interesting. Once again, remember the providence of God. God was at work here. Because what we're going to see is this would eventually lead to the arrest of Paul and Silas. It would eventually put them in a jail. There would eventually be a miraculous jailbreak. There would be a a Philippian jailer who would want to know how to be saved. Paul and Silas would give them the gospel. He will be saved and his whole household. 
And once again, dear friends, don't you marvel at the providence of God that orchestrates all of these events for his glory? Don't you marvel at the preparation of grace that's occurring even now in the heart of a Philippian jailer and his family? And don't you marvel at the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a power that is over sin and Satan and death itself? Well, may I challenge you this morning, those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, may I challenge you to go forth boldly this week and present the gospel. Do so with great confidence, knowing, number one, the providence of God that is at work, that God may be orchestrating things in your life for some dear sinner to hear the gospel. Be confident knowing that there is a preparation of grace that is going on that you will never be able to see or understand. And confident in the power of the gospel that will always do one of two things. It will even either soften a man's heart and he will come to Christ or it will further harden that heart because of their unbelief. Both of which ultimately bring glory to God. And for those of you who still walk in darkness... All I know to say is won't you confess your sin, repent of your sin, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved before it is too late. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we are struck with the glory and the power and the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that you have done in salvation. Lord, thank you for the truths that leap off of the page of this text. Practical truths that give us confidence in our presentation of the gospel to others and certainly confirm even more the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will take what we have learned today and you would cause us to live consistently with these truths, to live them out, that many might come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and that we might enjoy more fully the blessings, the riches of Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and once again, for His glorious sake, Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.